Welcome to On Farm Trials with the PNW Farmers Network, where we explore the many trials that come along with cropping systems innovation in the inland Pacific Northwest. Plenty of questions get asked while farming across this region, and together we are digging into what it's like to try to answer some of them as producers, researchers, and the many other professionals in the field that get things done. We're glad you're here. I'm your host, Carol McFarland. We're on the Zachariasen farm with um, Ms. Cheryl Hagen Zachariasen. Thank you so much for having me out to visit and talk about your on-farm trials. My pleasure. Would you share a little bit about yourself, your farm, and who you farm with? Yes. Um, We are just north of Pullman. Um, um, and so we interact a lot with Washington State University and the USDA research group here in Pullman. We um, have been on this farm since about 1935, uh, and Ariel, my daughter, is the fourth generation of our family to farm this land. We have a fairly small farm Um, for this area. We farm about 600 acres and we are going down a path of diversified crops and really taking a look at what and how we farm. It's exciting. I'm really looking forward to getting to hear more about that today. Um, You started to talk a little bit about um, where your farm is here outside of Pullman. Um, Could you describe a bit more about your farming conditions? Ours is a dryland farm, as is most of the area. We're on the wetter side, and I say that in quotation marks, um, the wetter side of Whitman County. So our rainfall is typically around 21 inches a year, sometimes more, sometimes less. Um, And... We also have very hilly conditions, so we have to be mindful about how we farm. It also determines our equipment, which is quite a bit different than the Midwest um, because we have to stay on those hills. So um, up until 2019, we were conventional farmers and um, basically also did a fair amount of recreational tillage. (laughs) So we, we had all the tillage equipment and we used it. In 2019, I um, happened to be doing an analysis because our our rotations were the typical winter wheat, spring barley, um, spring peas. And so I was doing an analysis on our ROI for those crops. And that was the year that, well, 2018 was actually when we brought the crops in, but 2018 was our best wheat harvest ever. We did about 116, 120 bushel of wheat to the acre, followed all of the recommendations um, with our field representative, and um, just did everything, got got all the feedings applied right and the fertilizer and used the herbicides and everything. And when I did the numbers, it was our least profitable crop by a lot. And so at that point, you look at it and say, we've got to do something different. And we started reading um, some of the books by uh, David Montgomery. Um, so his um, his four books, and that at that point, I read The Hidden Half of Nature. We read um, some of um, Gabe Brown's From Dirt to Soil, and um, really started looking at possibly going down that path of a more 
I don't want to say regenerative because that's become quite the catchphrase, but a more biologically sound method of farming. So in 2019, what we did with our spring crops is we traded in our 455 drills, which are kind of a minimum till drill. We, we parked all of our tillage equipment and bought ourselves a set of 1890 drills and um, put in a no-till crop. But at that point, we also did some intercropping just to you know kind of see what would happen because I've always been a firm believer in having diversity in your crops. It went pretty well. Um, you know, we had some hiccups and I learned, we learned some things at that point. So then the next year, 2020, we continued and, and our yields were okay. I mean, our soils are fairly degraded. And so we, um, we have a bit of work to do before they get to the point where, you know, we have a lot of organic matter. We have stabilized our organic matter and they're slowly increasing it every year. And we've also stabilized our soil pHs, but they, when people look at them, they still kind of go into <laughs> apoplectic <laughs> fits and, and wonder um, how we can even farm anything with the soil pHs at how low they are. Our soil pHs from uh, zero to six inches are anywhere from 5.6 to six, which is um, not bad for this area because some of the folks, um, some of the folks have even gotten down to the upper fours, um, and then and then from six to twelve inches, that's six and a half, which is pretty good. So, um, but we also find that we've stabilized this quite a bit, so we're we're very pleased with that. The other thing that we did was we decided to reduce our inputs, so we've been weaning our ground off of nitrogen. Um, fertilizers, we stopped using phosphorus and we stopped using potassium because we had really, really high levels when we tested, you know, like really, really high levels. Yeah. And, um, and then what we've been doing is slowly reducing our N to, um, we've got it to about 20 pounds that we stream on in the fall with our fall crop and we'll stream on in the in the spring with our spring crops. And then with that, we also have, have really tried to put more carbon into the mix. So what we do with um, the, the nitrogen that we put on and stream on is we uh, put solution 32, 20 pounds to the acre, but we also put a quart of molasses and a quart of humic acid. And it's, it's more to feed what's there. And it also seems to stabilize the nitrogen so it doesn't tend to um, volatilize as badly. At least someone needs to do some research on that. I don't have anything except my nose. And when you put that down, you can't smell the nitrogen or the ammonia. So works for me. <laughs> as we think about our on-farm trials, like how how is it when we know something to keep repeating a practice? When you first tried it, did you do it across a whole field? What did you compare it to? Um, and a little bit about how how you decided to to keep doing that with the um, solution thirty two. Well, reducing it, um, I had just read s some of the literature that's out there, and and then also some of the people who kind of aggregate the research and will kind of give you the the basics of the information. 
And um, one of the things they were saying is, for God's sakes, if you can, put carbon with whatever you apply. And it goes back to, if I could quote Lynn Carpenter Boggs, because that really made an impression. We were talking about the soils at one point, and she said, our soils are carbon-starved. And it's, and, you know, when you stop and think about it, it's like, you're right, they are. So what we did was we just went ahead and started reducing those inputs for economic reasons, but also for biological reasons, because I'm pretty sure when you put 120 pounds of N on, and especially if you put it on all at once, you lose a lot. And I know that we, when we did a soil test, we put 120 pounds of, it was anhydrous ammonia, and we stopped using anhydrous, oh, maybe 10 years ago, because that really, to me, it seemed to really harm our soils quite a bit. It made them like concrete. So, um, but one year we did 120 pounds of anhydrous ammonia. We put it in with a triple shooter. So we did NPK and, um, and some thiosol. And then um, we had it tested the next spring. And so of that 120 pounds that went in, there was, there was only 70 pounds remaining in the profile. And you kind of go, well, where did that go? And I'm sure that some of it volatilized off, you know, because you could smell when you're, when you're shanking um, anhydrous in, you can smell it. And, um, and I'm sure that some of it went through the soil profile and into the water. And when you put a lot of nitrogen in, I'm fairly sure that it also chews up a lot of your organic matter. I don't know that for certain, but it, you know, that nitrogen is there the organisms are going to use it to build their proteins, but they also need the carbon. And the most accessible carbon to them would be organic matter. So <laughs> that's kind of my reasoning. And what we found is our, the yields aren't, you know, like when you test the proteins, they're lower in proteins, which, which is telling you that you're missing yield. But we're also not worried about yield. We're worried about the quality and and the cost of of what we're doing so it or the cost per acre not the yield per acre the bushel per acre so um we have really reduced our input costs um for the most part there have been a couple of times when we've agreed to put things on that are supposed to be more biologically sound but economically it's like eh, this doesn't work unless you have some yield <laughs> And so um, what we've really tried to do is be very thoughtful about what we now um, put on as an input on our crops. One of the things I heard you talk about um, describing as really interesting to you was um, the smell and mm -hmm. how it decreased that smell that lots of folks in ag know um, that comes along with the anhydrous application. But also, so how did you try it the first time? Did you do, you know, a little part of your field? Did you go all in? Um, and then how did you watch it over time to see what the effects were from that application? We went all in. We just went ahead and applied all of it. We're fairly small and we don't, it's very difficult for us to have the capacity to set that out unless we have help. Um, so we just went all in and um, what we then started doing was soil testing um, with um, mainly partnering with 
Palouse Conservation District, we did um, a lot of soil sampling, and um, so we could see what the nitrogen levels were. And so what we found were the nitrogen levels were actually quite high, um, more than what we put on. So it's like, okay, <laughs> I'll take that. So, so what, the way we measured it was through both um, SAP analysis, which we started doing last year and have continued this year, and then and then with soil tests to see what our nitrogen levels are. The one thing I will say, you know, because we do come with lessons learned, which are usually tough ones, you never want to put <laughs> a nitrogen source and sugars in a tank and leave them for any amount of time because things grow. And so uh, cleaning that out was really an incredible deal. And you know, you also have to be really careful with the purity of, of especially the carbon sources because they can plug your screens, which then causes people to be unhappy and aggravated. <laughs> There's a lot of screens and pipes to clean out. Yeah. And there's so much busy, so many busy times on the farm that you don't need mm -hmm. extra things to clean out. Yeah. Yeah. And troubleshoot like that. Well, thanks. So I, it's been really interesting to hear about that moment when you know you had gangbuster yield, but your ROI was as narrow as it's ever been. Mm -hmm. And so now you're trying all these interesting things and then you're evaluating your ROI as part of that. Can you talk a little bit more about how you determine your ROI on a new practice? Um, we usually just do direct costs um, and then assign, I might assign some overhead cost to that as well or an indirect cost. But it's usually the inputs um, that we've got as an initial ROI um, because it's not completely accurate unless you put your overhead in there as well. But um, it's just the, our input costs um, based on the yield we get to see what we're getting. So for example, we decided not to burn down the volunteer triticale that we have. And, and so we've got nothing into it at this point. And then we decided to go ahead and foliar feed it and give it some micronutrients. And it, it'll end up being about $30 an acre. So all the costs we've got in there until we come in and harvest. And then you have the, you know, the costs of fuel and, you know, depreciation, et cetera. Um, but our ROI, you know, we can manage to have a less optimal yield. We're not going to get a hundred bushels on it this year at all. We'll probably get about maybe 50, but at 50 bushel for how much we sell it for, it's a good ROI. You know, we, I think I figured it'd be about $130 an acre, which is not bad. That's awesome. Thanks so much for for sharing some of that and you're thinking around that, maybe you can expand on it a little bit because I know you're doing some interesting things in terms of your marketing. Mm -hmm. um, can you describe a little bit more about, um, you know, what or how much is going into the traditional commodity market versus maybe some other fun things you've been trying? Um, we at this point um, are not selling anything in the traditional commodity markets. Um, we pretty much direct market all of our grains through our feed operation. So what we do is we will, we take all of our grains, grind them into a feed, and then um, sell them to other farms in the area. I think we're supporting about 150 
um, small farms in the area. So, and, and then we also provide feed for 4-H. Um, you know, they buy 4-H projects, buy feed from us for their steers and their pigs. And then we have people who have pastured poultry that they sell and they, they purchase feed from us for that. So um, the majority of our, our crops or all of our crops are going into that. And then we have some livestock that, you know, we'll direct market some of those. We're in the process of deciding how how much we'll expand that in the next few years and how we incorporate, incorporate that into our farming as well. So, but as a small farm, we have to be far more flexible. We can't rely on the commodity markets um, because we don't have the economies of scale that make that possibly a profitable <laughs> because I'm not so sure that it's as profitable for most people, you know, as they hope it will be. So mainly because of all the input costs. <laughs> There's a lot of different directions that can go mm -hmm. too. You can definitely spend as much as you want to per acre. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's, I think part of what we're trying to do here is explore how to make sure that what we're putting in, we're getting, um, getting that return on investment mm -hmm. out of and and how do we know as we try try new things um, yeah. and you know I actually heard uh, Dave Huggins break it down as um, soil oil and toil I mm -hmm. heard you talk a little bit about um, yeah. those things in addition to the input cost so are there other things when you think about return your ROI um, what other outcomes are you looking for I mean I hear you talking about soil testing and and maybe organic matter. Um, contributions as part of your return on the investment in addition to actual dollars? Well, at this point, we are um, pretty much um, the only operation that even penetrates the soil is when we put put the drill in the ground, and then it's a single disc opener, so it slices it open and, and theoretically covers it back. We're actually investing in a new um, John Deere drill it's the newest generation of their single disc opener drills and we're really excited because it also puts us more into precision ag which i think is an important there are really important components um to the precision precision ag so um what also it's the roi is one way to measure it and to me it's it's not a complete picture it's kind of like saying um, no-till or direct seeding is is a complete system. It's not. It's a tool. And I think we really can run into trouble when we think of it as a, a tool as a system. And so ROI is a tool as well. And so what we have tried to do here in the discussions that we've had is what is our metric? Um, what do we want to have happen? And what we want is to make sure that um, we're here, we have a, a sustainable and, and, um, profitable farm that, you know, is doing well over time. Uh, but also that we are, um, building the soil back. We're also allowing the ecology to come back in some parts that we shouldn't econ economically, we can't farm. So um, some of the other ways that we measure it is, you know, what's the wildlife, what's the bird population, um, you know, what's our insect and beneficial populations, um, how does our soil look, are there worms coming back? Because, you know, when you till, 
Worms don't like that so much, and they don't like anhydrous either. It's, it dries them out a bit. So we've really tried to expand how we see things. So as a consequence of that, because to us, ROI is an important part, but equally important is um, diversity and um, and what are those signs? So, you know, do we have beneficials? So we don't use insecticides. We stopped using insecticides about six years, six or seven years ago. And we stopped using seed treatments, although I did blink last year and, and used them in our winter pea crop. And I don't think I'll do that again because the winter peas with the triticale, none of that seed was treated and those winter peas actually did better. And it, it's probably a varietal, but I can't help but think that, you know, it also, um, I don't know that, well, most seed treatments from what I understand, and there's a, there was an um, entomologist who was talking at Palouse Conservation District talk who said that basically a lot of times the seed treatments are not effective and are prophylactic. So, um, which made me feel better about not using them because the thing is that the beneficials are not just above ground, but they're below ground. And when you use insecticides and fungicides indiscriminately, you're just not gonna kill the pests. You're gonna kill everything. So um, we don't use seed treatments, um, which have insecticides and fungicides because um, they will harm the beneficials that are below ground as well as the ones above ground. So we, we try to think about the whole system. Um, so we don't use fungicides and haven't for about four years. We don't use, or we try to really minimize our herbicides. So, um, so um, we've really, really tried to... Um, minimize how we're negatively impacting um, the ecology, if you will. So we really try to think of it as an ecology. Um, so one of the other things that we've started doing on our farm, and it's, it's an indirect thing. I mean, we will not economically, I'm not sure what it'll do for us, but we have areas that are wet that typically don't have crop in them, but we go ahead and put the crop in and then it doesn't come up and We've got bare soil, which to me is the worst. For us, at least, it's a standard that I have that we need to get everything covered. We've been struggling because of the weather the last couple of years, but we're working on it. But anyway, we've identified areas that tend to not produce crops because they're too wet. And so what we're doing is putting um, habitat back into it. So, for example, and this is with the help of Palouse Conservation District as well. They've got a lot of really great programs. They really do. I love the, all the shout outs. For, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're definitely yeah. great collaborators with yes. us at the Farmers Network and always yeah. deserving of all the shout outs. Yeah. And I, you know, just so we're transparent here, I'm on the board of um, supervisors, but um, as a landowner, I've been able to work with them and they've they've been on our farm a lot you know taking tests and doing soil samples etc so they've watched us as we've gone in this process and they've really helped us but we have identified some acres that um will go into pollinator and, and beneficial habitat 
and work to get the seeds. And we're actually, it's a wet area. So what we want to do is establish the pollinator and beneficial habitat. And then we'll come back in with trees in a little bit. And we are discussing trees that are actually economically beneficial as well. So, I mean, directly, because having those pollinators and those beneficials and returning that ground that isn't very productive back to back to some sort of habitat, I think is um, in the long run will will help us. So we're probably we're looking at maybe putting in some hazelnuts just to see what they would do. And we've also identified a couple of places where we'll put in some elderberries so we can, you know, possibly harvest those and market those. So we're kind of shifting. We're looking at shifting away from annual small grains and seeing if there are other perennial crops that we can use. We're um, looking at maybe doing some Kernza as it's developed because we also, in this whole process, are beginning to see that part of how we get soil health back and 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 help reestablish a, a healthy economy or ecology and economy is um, that we probably need to go more towards perennials and <laughs> trying to figure that out. Well, and as we think about carbon storage too, longer term, um, you know, that is one of the things they also talk about is more perennialization mm -hmm. um, is more carbon storage. So I think um, it's, it's really great to hear about your journey and hear um, also about some of these conversations about your larger management goals. I mean, I definitely am hearing you talk about, um, you know, yield is a really important goal for farm sustainability because that as part of the economic sustainability and trying to maximize that ROI, but it sounds like there's a lot of other management goals and, and that you've had a lot of discussions with your farming team to understand what those metrics are around those management goals. Primarily, it's always bothered me um, since I came on the farm back in the 80s um, that we'd go out and till, and it, and it seemed to me even back then that we were losing a lot of moisture, that our soil structure wasn't very good. Um, we were seeing erosion. We were praying for it not to rain so much in the spring that it crusted everything that we had to go back and harrow or replant, and it's like, why are we doing things this way? Or when you wake up in December after it's frozen, been frozen for a while, and you hear a horrible rain, and you know the erosion is just going to be horrendous. And we've always like tried to at least keep the soil on the farm and out of the waterways, so we have grass waterways in between all of our hills. But that's that doesn't keep the soil on on the hills or in your field. So um, part of it was literally just trying to, you know, trying to be a little more profitable, but also trying not to have erosion because that's, that's the biggest issue, I think, everywhere. And also not having nitrogen and phosphorus going into the water systems. I mean, you know, just it's like we are not an island. We affect everyone else and how we farm affects our neighbors. It affects people down the, the stream from us. So <laughs> you know, we just, I mean, we've, we've always tried to be pretty responsible with how we've done things and, you know, and but I, I think there's a lot of good reasons to 
that are also about farm productivity. If you have nutrients mm-hmm. going downstream, they're not going into your crop. No. And that's, that is actually like part of your investment yeah. going Good. down the stream. And, yep. and we don't want to see our money being washed away. <laughs> right. Um, and mm-hmm. also, you know, a lot of the conversation, especially here on the immediate Palouse is, um, and other parts of the region where t- the terrain really is something that, that growers face is, um, the yield stability. And when we mm-hmm. can keep more soil on, on our hilltops, you know, you talk, you were talking a bit about pH and I'm sure there's variation across your fields, whether, you know, where you're at on the hill, um, because of, you know, a, a legacy of erosion. And, uh, you know, you hear about people, um, really thinking about how we can get a bit more yield stability on our hilltops. Mm-hmm. And, you mm-hmm. know, it's all, all pieces of the puzzle. It's, you know, that agro ecosystem perspective. Um, yeah. You know, when the other thing is as, as our weather has become, um, it's, it's swinging to extremes. Um, it's also a question of ooh, how do we make our, selves more resilient and the way you do that is you make sure your soils are are resilient and and there is this piece of just changing your mentality to you know working with mother nature instead of trying to dominate it and um but it's also okay Yeah, I'm not so hot about those the prickly lettuce <laughs> that kind of goes to town. And, definitely and, a reason herbicides exist. Well, it is, but it's also a whole thing of you know you spend eighty years, ninety years trying to repress or suppress something or or eliminate it, and it comes it'll come back because once we let go of certain things, you know, the system tries to compensate, and so it's trying to learn how to work with that. Um, we used to be the farmers who had no weeds. Um, well, except maybe goat grass, but, um, no weeds. Um, you know, our fields were always clean. You know, we didn't have the best yields because our ground isn't the best ground around, but we had pretty respectable yields. And, um, and so we've got, (laughs) we're now to the point where people drive by and go, well, my God, you know, they must be out of their minds. And and you are right on the highway yes, here too, on aren't both you? Sides. <laughs> so people get up close and personal views of what we're doing. But um, you know, it's okay. I mean, it's 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 it is a humbling thing to have shifted what we do and to realize how important what other people think is really. I used to kind of kid myself that it's like I don't care, and it's like I care. It, it, um, but there's also a piece where what I was hoping we could do is kind of learn, um, how to make a transition and then pass some of that on to other people, you know, at least the cautionary tales. So for example, when we, the first year we put barley and radish together, it did really well, but, um, barley and radish ripen at different times. <laughs> when you're trying to combine your barley and you've got rather unripe sort of stuff, it, you know, it, it causes additional management issues and, you know, ways that you have to deal and store that grain. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that we've learned 
that I would pass on to others, but you Ooh, know. do you want to take like, do you have like a top five that we can share? I mean, this is, this is the podcast kind of about co-innovation and, yeah. and trying fun stuff and learning those <laughs> lessons. So what do you got for us? So, you know, I guess the first thing is we kind of went at it. We just went all in. You did. <laughs> and, and so what happens when you do that is it's like, okay, when something doesn't work. And we also, we went all in. So 2019 was pretty good. 2020 was pretty good. 2022 was the historic heat and drought. Yeah. 2021 was not good for anyone. No, it was terrible. And 2022, I don't, I think most people, their spring crops did not do super well. It was just too wet and too cold. Um, I, I will say that, um, you know, what we needed to, when we started this, we talked to a bunch of scientists, sat down actually, and said, okay, we want to do this. What's the consequence? And everyone's going, oh, <laughs> don't know. <laughs> These are not isolated and, variables. Yeah, yeah. Well, they aren't. <laughs> no. And and so um, what I would say is what you need to do is identify the first goal is, you know, like, do you want to just cover your soil first? Is that the first goal? And then, and then make your decisions based on that. You have to tease it out, but with the understanding that it's not isolated. Because, you know, one of the things is that if you want to, if you, you know, or one of the conundrums we ran up against is if I want a fair amount of residue on my ground, if I want it covered, um, do I put on more fertilizer to get that biomass. But the problem is that then you're also hindering, you're hindering any biology, you know, or inhibiting it that would help you de um, break. Decompose the decompose. residue. Because our residue now is decomposing. Sometimes it decomposes a little too quickly. Um, yeah. That's not a terrible problem to it's, have for some no-till folks. It's not. And, and the other thing is, and I'm pretty sure it's because we don't use a lot of fertilizer. We don't use a lot of, and, but, um, so, you know, it's, it's kind of pick what your first big goal is and then, and then try to figure out a way to do that, knowing that it's not isolated, that, that you're just trying to focus on one, but also trying to keep those other principles going, you know, or understand those other principles. And, and, you know, it's the, principles of soil health, you know, so, you know, don't disturb, cover your soil, living roots. Um, and so, you know, we also, it's also a matter of changing your philosophy and, and having a support group of other farmers who have tried things and, you know, that you can say, Hey, this is, was my experience. What was yours? Or do you think this is just, I'm being out of my mind? Um, I also feel like, you know, when you're doing something really radical, like intercropping with things that people aren't familiar with in the area, which for us is a lot of stuff. I mean, we're, we've been pretty conventional and pretty traditional. Um, so intercropping like barley and radish, we did it on entire fields and it took us about two years to deal with the radish issue that we had. <laughs> Here you can, like one of the lessons learned maybe that I've heard from folks with the radishes is that you got to watch that seeding rate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we had a pretty low seeding rate, but now we basically put in a pound to the acre, maybe two if we're feeling really racy. Um, turnips are actually a better 
Turnips actually are a better alternative. And part of the reason why we like to have turnips and radishes around is because they also provide sugars and carbons later through the season. Um, so then let's see, uh, you really, really need to understand, especially if you're going to no-till, you need to understand your drill. Because to me, getting the crop in and getting the crop off are probably the fundamental. <laughs> you got to get the crop in, you got to get it off. And so that means that you have to have a good drill and you have to have a good combine. And, you know, then you need to store it but or market it. So um, with the drill that we had, it had some issues. We overhauled it, but um, I don't think it was an optimal spacing for us. Um, and... So we, we definitely shifted that because I think that is a major issue. Um, but, you know, you also have to be careful about, I mean, with no-till farming, you don't have as much iron, but the iron you have can be kind of spendy. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, let's see. And then I think, I think people can actually dispense with some of the pesticides that we use. And I use pesticides in the broad spectrum. So for example, um, I, I really wonder if seed treatment is necessary. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, we, I don't think we've had issues with seed treatment every once in a while. My, my attitude is, okay, if I've got some emergence problems, you know, I need to go through a process of elimination. Is it the drill? Is it the soil conditions? Was there a disease or a pest issue? Um, but my attitude is, if there's a disease or pest issue, why is my soil not balanced? Or am I sowing a crop in there that's vulnerable? And, you know, that's kind of a tricky question because sometimes it's the crop that economically you need to sell. Um, you know, especially in our current farming systems. Can I follow up on that uh -huh. a little bit? Because yeah. I hear you being extremely brave when you just totally cut out all insecticides. I can just imagine some listeners being uh -huh. a bit shocked by that. I, I'm wondering, maybe you could speak briefly to some of the consequences that you saw from that or how that played out for you. So, you know, the one thing that is tough, especially if you're growing peas, is you do tend to get more shot hole peas. Um, and for us, that's not an issue because it's fine for feed. Um, but what I will say is that I haven't seen an economic detriment. And so last year was a classic, you know, because it was wet and cool and then it got sort of warm. The insects just exploded. I was driving through our triticale pea intercrop and the aphids were just breathtaking. It was like, oh, okay, this is beyond 10%. They're just up every, you know, every head. They're just all over the place. And so, but as I was driving through, you know, I was focusing on the aphids and just really kind of stunned at how many aphids there were. But when I looked at, when I looked at um, the top of the gator, um, there were also a lot of predators. And I thought, okay, we'll just, because we're not going to have insecticides, we're not gonna spray them on. So we'll just see what happens. And um, there were a lot of ladybug larvae, there were a lot of lace wings, a lot of predators. And so within 24 hours, 
They were gone. They were completely gone. All the aphids were All gone. All the aphids were gone. Now, they may have flown to the neighbor's crops, <laughs> but they were gone. And But all the predators were there, ladybugs. And, and the really cool thing is, because we haven't used insecticides, we have ladybug hatchings that are just unbelievable in our grass. I mean, a lot of, and a lot of praying mantids. We've got a lot of bumblebees. We've got... Just a, a lot of life coming back. We've got a long way still to go, but it's been pretty cool to watch. Um, fungicides, um, we don't use fungicides because we really want to encourage um, fungal growth and, and, and healthy fungal populations in our soil. And we're starting to really see the, you know, the nondescript brown fungi coming up in our soils, which is really cool. But um, what was it, 20... 2020, we had kind of a wet, um, cool weather until about mid-June, and and we had winter wheat, and we had two different varieties in two different fields. <laughs> the one field didn't even bat an eye. The other one kind of stood, you know, withstood the the stripe rust until about the last five days and just boom, you know, just went orange. And, and we knew that we knew that that was going to be a risk. And so, you know, and it definitely affected our yields, but I'm not, you know, what we learned from that is, you know, do your homework and make sure you have varieties that are pretty robust. So for us last year, you know, everyone sprayed, oh man, I think they put on, at least they sprayed twice airplane on fungicides for, you know, rust, because it was, again, a cold, wet, um, cool, wet spring. And that's just conditions are ripe for, for rust developing. And the triticale had some few leaves down low that had stripe rust and nothing above. So, um, so it was, you know, it, it's been, it's been a process of learning you know, what your boundaries are as far as what sort of crops you can grow. And I hear that, you know, some of your, the, the alternative marketing and diversifying your marketing strategies does add some flexibility and resilience into that. It does. And, and one of the things though, that is kind of, and I don't know how quite to, how it gets addressed, but what we're doing, we can do because we have a completely different market. But I sure would like to be able to figure out how things can translate to other people as well. Well, um, I've got a couple more questions here. Um, I would love to come out and chat with you some more another time because there's just so many fun <laughs> things to talk about in this space. Um, and you're doing some really, really great stuff. And we haven't even talked about all your work with the research community. Um, maybe sometime we can. Uh, sure. Have, an, have another interview with some of your other research partners. But um can you talk about one thing that you'd really like to try but can't right now because of some limitations such as equipment, precipitation, lease agreements, that sort of thing? Well, we're lucky because we own all of the ground we farm. So we're so lucky that we're able to do that. It gives us flexibility that we otherwise wouldn't have. And it would be unfair to ask a landlord unless they were in there with you to take those risks because there are a lot of risks in this. I'd love um, to get the landlords on board with that oh, though. Yeah, it would be great. It would be great. Um, I, you know, most of the things that we are, we've wanted to try, we are 
doing. Um, the one that I would really love to be able to do is I'd love to be able to get this farm more to a permaculture sort of place, but I, I don't know. I don't know how that looks at this point. So, um, you know, there are some things that we haven't tried just because we don't know yet. And that's been, that's been, it's been, a an interesting process, uh, because this area has been so conventional in some ways that it, there are other farmers kind of busting out and saying we need to do things differently and, and looking at organic or biologically sound or regenerative practices. But the most, you know, some of the most frustrating things, it's not necessarily for us because we have some flexibility, but it's really frustrating that we can't do things on a wider scale like intercropping um, where you can do like piola, you know, so you mix peas and canola because we don't have the infrastructure to separate those. It's one of the things that um, we're part of a, a pilot program with um, an organization called the Soil Carbon Initiative, and they're um, part of Green America. And um, so we've been having conversations about other, you know, what can we do to help other farmers, you know, take those risks? How can we minimize those risks for people? Because they're not, they're, they don't have the same context that we, Zacharias and Zacharias and Farm has. And so that's actually been far more frustrating to me is it's not what we haven't been able to implement because we'll figure it out and we'll we'll do it in good time. But it's, you know, how can we how can we kind of lead other people down the path? And well, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but we're looking at at different things. So for example, if we could do something like have S FSA um um, extend interest-free loans to people who want to purchase a no-till drill um, and who will then agree to minimize, you know, to go to a certain stir, um, you know, they can't go above a certain stir factor. Um, if we could just change crop insurance so that so that they'll actually insure intercropping because we got kicked off <laughs> of crop insurance in 2020 when we said, you know, here's what we want to do. And they said, we can't insure that. And so then we didn't, you know, we were not able to participate. That's, That's a game changer in itself. It really is because we were not in crop insurance in 2021. So then when USDA came in and said, you know, okay, this was a drought, this was, you know, um, we're going to help you out. We didn't get to participate because we didn't have crop insurance because we were intercropping. <laughs> so it's like, oh man. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, I mean, and if you're, I guess theoretically, you know, some of the practices you're mm -hmm. doing builds resilience in your soil over time, which might be a form of insurance in itself, mm -hmm. but maybe because you're still working on this transition. Exactly. And, and in this area, it's really interesting. One of the things we did learn, um, or the hard way, I guess, is you you read and listen to the folks who are doing this work in the Midwest. And I mean, what they are doing is so cool and, and just really wonderful. So the Gabe Browns, the Rick Clarks, and, um, but their, their climate is so different. And those, those summer rains really do make a difference. And so for us, I talked to someone 
oh, early in this process. And he basically said, you're probably looking at about seven to 10 years of transition. And, and he's right. It'll be about that. And so it's like, how do we do this so other people can do it and not take the economic hits? Because I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you it hasn't, you know, we've had some economic hits and partly because of weather and partly because of our own ignorance. But, um, you know, and we were able to, you know, we're okay. We can do that. We had the resources to do that, but other people don't. And so that's the piece where it's like, okay, <laughs> how do we figure this out? So other people don't, don't have to take those, um, or how do we minimize those risks for other people? Well, and especially I'm hearing that, you know, some of your economic risk might be buffered a bit by the return on investment calculations. Mm -hmm. Yes. And yes. And, um, but there are also, you know, for other people, they have other costs that we don't have in addition and that are unavoidable. And so, um, I think it's, it's, we have to do this transition. It can't just be farmers. It has to be policymakers. It has to be USDA. It has to be conservation districts. Consumers. Consumers. Yeah. Or um, eaters, we should say. <laughs> eaters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is your biggest barrier to trying new things on your farm? Hmm. The biggest barrier? Well, actually we should say, why do you try all these new things? Because <laughs> um, you like to go all in. Yeah. yeah. That's what I've um, heard. Yeah. Somewhat impatient. It's like, okay, I did this. And um, the, probably the biggest barrier is just not, not knowing or not understanding. Ignorance, I think, is our biggest barrier. So, you know, if there's something that we want to try, it's like, what does this mean to do this? And, and in in some ways, our biggest barrier has been our our mindset. You know, it's been our cultural training as farmers. It's been, you know, how we think, it, and and what we understand the system to be, or and versus what it actually is. <laughs> that. <laughs> well, and I think a little bit about. Um like a really the most zoomed out of applications of the scientific method is really about curiosity and asking questions and trying to figure out how to get meaningful answers. And so mm -hmm. I hear so much curiosity in your processes. Um, and so, yeah, as we dive into a little bit of, of the answers and what's your most fun, what the most fun thing about trying new stuff on your farm? Um, it's actually seeing, um, it's seeing, new plants, new things, new insects, just seeing how, how things are changing. So it's, it's digging and we're in the, we've got a project where we're putting, um, we're trying to put native trees and shrubs back into some spots, you know, just so we can, you know, start putting field borders in. And, um, so it's really cool when we have to, when we're digging into the soil to plant the trees, um, to, to look at the soil and see the worms there and see the structures coming back and that it's looking better that, you know, even though it's been dry this spring, we have moisture, um, you know, in, in most places there's moisture just below the surface. So it's been a, it's been very gratifying. It's really cool to go out and be able to pull a plant out and have it come out with roots and soil is just it's like, yeah, we're, we're, we're on track. 
that's the really cool stuff is to see the changes. They're slow because we're a dry, we're a dry climate, but they're there and it's really cool to see those. Oh, that's so exciting. Go exopolysaccharides. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> um, all right. So let's finish up by what do you think are reasons others might not try new things on their farms? Um, I think I think it comes down to cultural biases. I think it comes down to economics. I think it comes down to not owning the land and, and having to rent ground and having to rent a lot of ground. I think it comes down to... Um, literally not having the time because, you know, in order to make it as a farmer nowadays, especially with that as expensive as the equipment we need to use around here is, that um, people just don't dare um, do it. They, you know, because if you make a mistake, the margins are so thin. And that leveling package on the combine mm -hmm. is definitely a price premium. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the articulated tractors and having the horsepower we have to have and the, the heavy-duty equipment to keep them on the hills. I mean, you know, and the margins are so thin for people that to make a mistake could be just deadly, you know. And so I think it really is... Um, a situation, like I said before, where, where farmers just can't do it on their own or shouldn't be expected to, that there has to be a network and, and safety nets. And I don't know what that looks like, but I, I don't think it's just farmers alone doing it. I think it's scientists, policymakers, politicians, everyone needs to be in there doing it and helping. That is such a great note to end on. It's been such a pleasure visiting with you today. Same here. Thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge and experience with us. Oh, and happy to do so. As always, a big thank you to our guests today for sharing their wealth of knowledge and experience with us. This podcast is produced by the PNW Farmers Network team with music credit to Carlos Flores. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not represent that of the PNW Farmers Network or any associated agencies. Please remember that experimental results will vary and listeners are encouraged to try things at home. Thank you for joining us for the On Farm Trials podcast with the PNW Farmers Network. If you like what you heard, please support this work by sharing, rating, and reviewing. And do consider joining us as a guest or nominating a friend who is trying things on their farm. We look forward to hearing from you.